Welcome back to the arbitration station. Yeah, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. In Russia. Oh, shit. Well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. So if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dalkis Kulborg. And I'm Brian Kodak. And we are two of your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% at least new co-host. Where in the world are you, Joel? In Copenhagen, as per usual, where in the world are you, Brian? I am in a law firm that is not my own in London, and that is because I have our third co-host next to us. Hello. Hello. Who are you? <laughs> Please introduce yourself. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Sadia Bhatti, and uh, I'm counsel here at a law firm Gilles Noël in London. And you are our third co-host. Yes, that is exciting. the big news that we teased for for the fourth season. Um, how does it Champagne feel? Champagne and cannons. Yeah, it, exactly. exactly. I, we've got some macarons in the office to celebrate that. And uh, <laughs> I'm very, very happy, very excited to be part of this adventure. It's so great to have you. And Joel, it's too bad you're not in the room for this premiere episode. Mm, that really sucks. Although I, I have to say now with two business lawyers and one academic i kind of feel outnumbered and it only makes sense that you are sitting in eating macarons together in london and i'm sort of <laughs> in in descent you know objecting you somewhere in two macarons together okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you do live in, in you do live in cambridge though don't you still oh, yeah. study? i actually still live in cambridge i work here so i spend a lot of my time here in london but i yeah it's true i do live in cambridge in the uk just to clarify, there's Cambridge <laughs> in Cambridge in the U.S. as well. But that does I'll... give you some academic points still, I think. That, that does give me some academic Thank you for that. Yeah, I can say that I'm, I live in Cambridge and people always assume I'm a professor in Cambridge, but which is not true. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, it gives me academic points. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, great. Joel, are you actually, Sadia, had um, an update on a conference, an upcoming conference? Yes. So um, I wanted to share news about um, an exciting conference I'm organizing, which is with SICA, which is the Center of Commercial Opportunity in Pakistan. And we are having an inaugural, inaugural event for uh, the Young Arbitration Group at SICA. And so we're having a, a conference on the 15th and the 16th of November in Islamabad in Pakistan. So it's a jurisdiction where um, there's a lot to do in terms of arbitration. There's a lot of positive energy. And we have a number of people flying in uh, from uh, the US, the UK, France, etc. that are um, accepted to be part of the conference. And of course, we're going to have local people as well. Um, so that's going to be on the 15th, 16th of November. A lot of institutions have graciously accepted to be supporting organizations of that conference, including the ICC, 
the ICDR, uh, Arbitral Woman, and a number of other institutions, uh, which I will cite when we get closer to the date. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> can, can people just sign up online? Or? Yes, yes, absolutely. You can just go on Sika's website. We're going to start publicizing it um, on the major um, you know, news alerts for arbitration. But yeah, you can just sign up on li- online um, for uh, the people interested. It's a two-day thing. So the first day is a conference, and the second day is going to be an international arbitration training. Um, and uh, it's open to everyone. The reason why we're doing it in Islamabad is because we want to be closer to the government people. And so we have people from the Attorney General's office that are going to be uh, attending and participating as well. So exciting mm. times. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, exciting. I'm starting to realize I've actually been sitting still for a long time and not been going to arbitration conferences the way we always complain about doing too much now yeah. i'm starting to feel the the urge and the inspiration <laughs> to travel the <laughs> conference circuit <laughs> yeah i mean it would be wonderful to have uh, to have you guys over i mean it really is when you when you switch jurisdictions like that you just really realize how important it is to talk about i mean the topics are the same everywhere really and pakistan has i mean we've been working on this conference for the past couple of you know couple of months and maybe even a year um, but that was before all the recent developments that happened in Pakistan, um, ha- uh, you know, occurred in terms of obviously the exit award against against Pakistan. You might be speaking about it, actually. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll probably <laughs> return to it, maybe. Um, and so it's it's very uh, timely. If I can, if I can say that, but it also shows that you know we um, arbitration concerns a lot of different jurisdictions, and it, it's nice to to go elsewhere than in London or Paris or you know the traditional jurisdiction. Not that yeah. there's anything with those conferences, <laughs> but it's no, nice no. to no, no, no. <laughs> And one thing that you mentioned, which is, and and then I'm going to stop about that, is that interestingly, you know, these people are in desire, like they they need you know, people to come in and train them and speak about arbitration. I mean, this is a next generation of practitioners there that want to learn about this topic. And here, there's an endless supply of people who want to give those talks. Um, (laughs) No, but it's true, right? right? I mean, the supply and demand is different. Yeah, I mean, I contacted them and every one of, of my friends and colleagues uh, to, to participate in the conference. Everyone's like, yeah, sure, absolutely, no problem, you know, for free. <laughs> Everyone's I mean, because it's a it's a new place. I feel you it's know. a new jurisdiction. It's interesting. It makes sense from business development point of view. It yeah. makes sense from marketing point of view, and also it's it's uh, yeah, it's exciting. So mm. so lesson learned for other jurisdictions. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Vienna, Joel, you are traveling to a con- you would you even call it a conference? No, I think it's a bit better than a conference. The Uncentral Working Group, you mean? Yeah. It's a little yeah, bit better yeah. than I, I am actually just a week, week before that, I'm going to Prague for what is essentially uh, a state uh, focused conference as well, which is also a regular thing. So I have uh, Central Europe coming up on the itinerary next couple of weeks. Uh, okay. But the Uncentral Working Group is obviously something we all look forward to. Hopefully, yeah. I'll try to rope in a few state people and interview them for the podcast. Last time around in Vienna, I think I spoke only to. Michele Potesta, but uh, since there's a lot of government people in the room, hopefully we can uh, get some of them to to uh, talk on on yes. air. That sounds exciting, Jill. I might actually be there, to be honest. So I might see Ooh. you there. <laughs> the arbitration station fourth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, um, so I will put. Yeah, that that would be really exciting if I go there. Then we should just interview people together. 
Yeah, we'll just sit down, you and I. We can let we can basically just get rid of Brian and do a whole episode. While <laughs> okay, Brian okay. I'm shutting this operation so. down. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that, but that would be exciting. That's uh, I'm looking forward to it. If I can, uh, I'm still not 100 percent sure, but if I can make it, then then be really great to interview people there. But what's the difference between Prague and Vienna? Uh, so Prague is not connected to the UN. It's essentially uh, any conference, meeting. Uh, but it's it's organized at least partly by the Czech Ministry of Finance, maybe the the Czech Republic entity that deals with all their cases, and they've been doing this for a long time. It might might be the eighth, eighth or the ninth annual conference, and they just bring a lot of state people together, and obviously also. Uh, people who work for law firms who want to or already do represent states. So there's an interesting mm-hmm. mix that sort of differs a little bit from the typical arbitration conference. And is it on investment arbitration? Yes, only on oh, investment okay. arbitration. Yeah, so only it's, on investment. Yeah, so it's in, in addition to like the public conference, there's one or two days before that starts, which is for states only when they basically like share experiences and behind closed doors compare notes on uh, their arbitration experience. Perfect. Sounds great. Right. We're not welcome for that part. <laughs> Clearly, you sharks. <laughs> um, well, I'll hold down the fort here in London while you guys run around the world and spread the good gospel of arbitration. Um, but let's talk about our topics today. Joel, you will be uh, leading us off in the first topic, which uh, will be the largest arbitral awards. Is that does that encapsulate what you'll be telling us about? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'll. I'll... I'll read you a list or maybe have you read me what you think the list should look like and then I tell uh, you and the listeners if you're right or wrong and then that's the end of the segment. You l- you love these you love these games. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're going to be victim to these games. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to <laughs> May I start because that's a question that everybody asks me they're like what was the uh, the biggest arbitral award ever and the the, uh, the the first one that comes to everyone's minds of course and mine is Yukos. Am I right in thinking it, that's one uh, in the list? Yes, that is that is indeed number one. But 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 hold it. Yeah, hold it. Hold it for the segment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree, though. I think it is. That's what everyone said. <laughs> um, okay, and then the second topic we have, Sadia will be doing her inaugural segment on the difference between institutional versus ad hoc arbitration. We've talked about institutional arbitration or some of the institutions in arbitration, but we have not talked about the comparison or even ad hoc arbitration on its own. So that will be great and enlightening. And for the third segment, we'll be interviewing Elizabeth Rimmer, who is the CEO of Law Care, which is a charitable organization that deals um, with mental health. So they um, have a hotline for people that are dealing with mental health issues, uh, lawyers, not just people, lawyers, um, dealing with mental health issues. And it is timely because last week was, uh, on October 10th, was Mental Health Day. So in observance of that very important day, uh, we will be talking to her about some of the mental health issues lawyers specifically face. Um, all right. Well, Joel, you will lead us off. So the largest arbitral awards ever, including investment and commercial, as we tend to say in our introduction to this podcast. I have a list of five. I was hoping you would guess, but Sadia, as the type A, straight A students, I assume you are <laughs> already jumped on it and wanted to, to tell the teacher. So I'm going to have to uh, to improvise. You are right. It is indeed Yukos versus Russia, the majority of former majority shareholders of uh, of the Yukos company. 
that is the biggest award and maybe the most famous award, at least in investment treaty arbitration. But let me ask you this. How big ballpark was the award uh, when it was rendered in 2014 mm. compared to how big it is today in 2019 with interest ticking? That's an interesting guess game. Okay. Um, how big was it then, first of all? Uh, was it around... I mean, it was definitely in billions, first yeah. of all. Yeah, definitely billions. Definitely double-digit billions. Double-digit billions. Uh, yeah. Was yeah. it around 40 or... I was going to say 50. Yeah, something yeah. around that. Yeah. <laughs> We're 50. so specific. Is it, was it 50? Yeah, I think 50 Was it including... Was US. it including... Was it including costs? Was it at 50 billion? Because I remember there was a whole thing about how much the legal costs were. Oh, jeez, I don't actually know. Uh, I don't think so. I think I think that, that number is excluding that the, costs, actually. I think so. Yeah, quantum award. Okay, so yeah. it was excluding costs. All okay, right. but now? Yeah, and now. It's five years later. There was something recent about this. Okay, let me just quickly in my head do some compound interest math. <laughs> uh, I mean, it must be like upwards of 150 100 100 100 billion i mean oh that was I, a leading follow-up question sorry exactly yeah, <laughs> no that's not what i meant at all no i actually was gonna say the opposite um I, yes there is the interest element to it but wasn't a huge part of it set aside or are the proceedings still ongoing for setting aside oh you're too good of a lawyer. Is this how it's going to be? <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't count. <laughs> no, I know it doesn't count, but that's, no, that's, it, that's it, it's a good point. Yes, so the award is still pending set aside, which is why it's probably top of mind, because it was in uh, the Court of Appeal in The Hague only last week as we record this. They had the hearings because it was set aside by the District Court of The Hague. Right. So as of right now, there is no award, I guess, legally speaking, because it has been set aside but it's still pending, and it's probably going to be a long while. So you're right, but it also it it, it it still no 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 it still has a value, obviously, uh, in the event that it is reversed. So somewhere, somewhere, someone is counting uh, how how big this award now is uh, if they can go ahead. And there are obviously enforcement efforts pending still. There were at least they are all now waiting for what's going on in the Hague and the set aside. Yes, there's enforcement proceedings going on in different jurisdictions, right? Even in the mm. in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, yeah, as far as I know, I think they are all now basically halted. Oh, uh, okay, all right. Because precisely as you pointed out, because the award is undergoing set aside, and it was set aside mm -hmm. in, in the first mm -hmm. instance, and in the Netherlands, for better or for worse, they have three instances. So even regardless what the district or what the Court of Appeal now is going to say, it will most likely end up in the Dutch Supreme Court. So it's going to be a while longer, which is why it's interesting to note that I think that the interest is ticking at about 2 million US per day. What? As we speak. So oh it's a very... Goodness expensive set-aside proceeding that is now ongoing. Wait, two million, you said five years ago, two million a day, that's like 700 million a year. So that's like th almost three billion extra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's even more, uh, but I, I don't have any any concrete evidence to back this up. The rumors are suggesting it's a, about 60 plus billion as we speak. Oh my goodness. 
That's a lot of money. I mean, this puts poor invest these poor investors. It's like <laughs> the biggest roller coaster of emotion. Being like, I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm rich. <laughs> I'm richer. <laughs> I'm broke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they are literally poor. Uh, yeah. Every now and then, and then they're not again. Okay, well, I think that was an easy one. Yeah, that easy. is an easy one. I I think uh, you would fail as arbitration lawyers if you could not identify it as the biggest one. It gets trickier as we move further down the list, though. What do you have any other ideas about major cases? Yeah, I had an inclination. Um, was in the recent award against Pakistan, one of the biggest ones as well. Was it the record deck one? Yes, you are right. It's I now I'm taking this off of Dimitri, a researcher's quantification of these. I'm not 100% sure, although I trust him. So this, if you're like, uh, for some reason, looking for a good source to use this in some kind of formal context, don't take this for granted. But uh, the Dimitri's list rhymes well with mine. And on that, the Tethyan Copper versus Pakistan is number five on the list. Number five, uh-huh. okay. Yeah, but it it is the second largest exit award ever. I could not really identify how much it was when we talked about it last time around, Brian. But it was six million. Sorry, billion, of course, six billion U.S. dollars. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's huge. It's huge as well. Yeah, and then on top of that, it's sixty-two million U.S. dollars in costs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. I don't know exactly how long the case went on, but I think by any standard, $62 million in legal fees and costs, that's a lot of money. Oh, yeah, but it must have been, because I was thinking about this, because the award was just handed out recently, like a couple of months ago. Mm. And Mm. you would think that the more recent awards would be bigger in quantum, because, I don't know, you just feel like inflation... And other concerns. What do you mean generally, be, like a chronological? Yeah, just like a general trend would be cases now. The damages awards are more than what they used to be, but um, hmm. so I'm not sure. I think you know, the the facts of the case, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, everything is special, and every case is unique. Yada yada yada. Like hmm. for example, the Yukos one and this one are completely separate cases, right? I mean, the, at least the. The Pakistani one was it, it? Was it about the mining licenses? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's it's you know the loss of potential investment, I imagine, also because yeah. it was a question of expropriation. Um, but the legal costs that are they comparable? Because that that's actually probably a good question. Because even if the cases, the facts are completely different, we can imagine that the complexity of them are, you know, somewhat similar for arbitration lawyers i mean is it it the Mm, same i'm checking now and no it's not even close i'm reading straight off of the yukos award there were several claimants and they were all ordered to uh, russia was ordered to reimburse the different claimants Uh, but it was like a couple of million per claimant and that they were but that i that i think and i'm kind of guessing now but there was a whole thing you know with them I think Pakistan didn't really uh, impress the tribunal in the Pakistani case, and they made repeated efforts to have the claims thrown out, and there was a whole corruption dance. And it wouldn't surprise me if maybe Pakistan got a, a larger share of the claimant's costs than Russia did in the Yukos case. Right, right. And also, I imagine the Yukos case was much longer, too, overall. 
and this yeah. one, in fact. Yeah, that was the whole thing with the secretary, if you remember that they challenged the secretary who was a junior yes. associate when the case started and a partner when the case ended. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was this challenge about him being the fourth member of the tribunal because he yeah, exactly. spent so many hours on the case that they were like, you wrote the award. Yeah, yeah and that, that argument has more bearing when he is all of a sudden a partner with the law firm compared to when he's just a junior. Right. Person. Yes, of course. Yeah. But in any event, I mean, the costs are dwarfed. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it does because it's a lot of money, but it, a couple of million here and there when you're talking about double digit billion awards, uh, the costs kind of disappear in the, the big bag. Yes. <laughs> if you win, yeah. Yeah, very true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true. Then there are actually a couple of commercial cases that are up there on the list too uh, that we don't really know that much about. One is uh, one that I've talked about maybe on air or just off air repeatedly. Um, it's Walid Al-Karkani et al. versus Chevron and Aramco. Uh, that's number oh. two on the list. Uh, oh, which, really? it, Yeah, it's kind of well known because it was in seated in Cairo mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, a lot of weird things happened in the case, but the claimants were ultimately awarded uh, 18 billion US, but they have not been able to enforce it anywhere in the world. So I think it's kind of a paper tiger still because the claimants, I don't know if, you, if you've heard about this or if you remember, but they, they uh, are members of the Saudi royal family trying to argue that they had some sort of hereditary right to a concession that was granted to their, by their ancestors to Chevron and Aramco's predecessor company uh, and that there was some sort of arbitration agreement in the concession agreement. Uh, And it was administered, and this is why most people in the business know about it, by something called the International Arbitration Center in Cairo, which is not a well-known place at all. And uh, pretty credible complaints have been made that the whole thing was just bought (laughs) by the claimants from the International Arbitration Center. Because ultimately, I think after like several tribunal back and forths and, and people resigning, it was really hard to find a tribunal in place. Uh, it was actually part of the secretariat of the institution together with new arbitrators that rendered the award, uh, which obviously made it kind of hard to enforce in most places. Oh, wow. So that we should earlier talk about that when we talk about fake arbitration. If you can fake an arbitration to the tune of 18 billion US, that's, <gasps> that's worth a shot. <laughs> don't give anybody any ideas yeah exactly yeah 18 billion wow yeah i know Can I, is, sorry, the, no i was just thinking so that's one uh that was a commercial arbitration case and so it wasn't against a state was it no it, it was basically the other way around it was representatives of yeah. a state against foreign companies right right that's interesting it's interesting because the recent ones um you know what where they're the Pakistani one, or actually, there's another one I have in mind. I don't know if it's in, on top of your list. <laughs> a recent one involving Should. Nigeria. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's is not that... a treaty-based, I think, right? I think it's a contractual one. Is it? Not, oh, not, yeah, maybe Not that right. it matters. I, I mean, that, that all depends on how we defi- define investor-state uh, arbitration. But we're talking about the same, the P&ID uh, versus... Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an award against the state. And so the whole discussion is also like how much percentage is that of the GDP 
GDP of that country, like who was going to pay the bill, you know? How much was that one? Yeah. And I don't, how much was that? Do you have, well, if it's yeah. not on the top five. I think they got 9 billion US dollars. So it's number three on the list. Oh, it is number three on the oh, list. You got- wow. <laughs> You're good. So it's a big gas dispute. And it's interesting because the, as far as I can tell, that's way more than, than what was actually invested by the claimant. So it's a whole, you know, the classic uh, uh, lost profit thing that they had a 20 year contract that never really materialized. And they were awarded damages based on what they would have received over the 20 years, although they had only invested, I think, 40 million in it. So do you have any, because I also remember this discussion and it's not in, in my notes, but I would imagine that 9 billion US is quite a significant portion of Nigeria's GDP. Yeah, I unfortunately don't have the percentage, but I'm pretty sure it's huge. And that that has been discussed uh, a lot here in the recent conferences that I've been at, just because it's just, you know, what it means for the state is significant. Um, and Yeah, and I think maybe that the reason you've heard about it as well recently is that it, it's an ongoing enforcement proceeding in the UK. Yeah. Uh, which has basically allowed uh, the claimants to enforce the award, <coughs> which is now at 9.6 billion, because again, interest is ticking. Um, and I think, in the view of the state, this is punitive damages. That's what they're arguing, which would be contrary to English public policy. So, mm-hmm. okay. in their view, this has been, you know, the, the damages were so much larger than what was claimed. So, it is essentially tantamount to punitive damages, which is not allowed. Uh, because I was going to I mean, this whole GDP discussion, it's not necessarily a grounds to limit the recovery. So, no. I mean, sure, you can bring up this this other stuff about it being punitive, but um, it's it's kind of a theoretical discussion on the ability of an arbitral tribunal to award such high damages against a state. But then again, you know, if a state can just hide behind its GDP ratios, then it can mm. just have... No, no, yeah. no I, I don't think that's a, that's not a legal... I think that's more of a PR no, or thing. Agreed. Completely agreed. It's just that it's been in the news for, you know, in the when I say the news, it's not necessarily just the arbitration news for that reason, right? I mean, when yeah, we talk true. the whole discourse about backlash, about... Yeah, arbitration, etc. When when people discover these amounts, they're just they they they, you know, they, 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 that's the first thing that ha- that comes to their mind, especially yeah. when it when it concerns you know Nigeria or other. Yeah, yeah, others. yeah. And, I, uh, and I but I completely we, agree. It it has nothing to do with the legal grounds, but it's just, you know, it just appears to be um, a, a huge huge amount. Um, yeah, and I think we have to assume that there are settlement discussions ongoing. I know that's the case with the Pakistan uh, award, and I would imagine it is with Nigeria as well. And then, of course, you're like you're playing every instrument in the orchestra, trying to build some leverage in the settlement discussions. And if you can get some press traction and people saying, "Oh, this right. is so crazy," maybe that might influence the settlement discussions yeah. outside of court. I would imagine. But you're Brian. You're basically saying what the judge in the English Commercial Court said. And I'm quoting him here. He said that um, the public policy in favor of enforcing arbitral awards outweighs any public policy in refusing enforcement of an award of excessive compensation. Mm-hmm. So basically, they can cry as much as they want, but the presumption here is for uh, enforcing awards, even if the compensation appears to be excessive. So mm-hmm. reluctant to go into the merits of the compensation determination, which is, I mean, all fine and well in theory, but it also makes a lot of difference when uh, you get nine billion US. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, but you just if even if you take it out of the investor state context to take away that like aspect of it and say in the commercial arbitration, the private individual who has an ex- extreme or even a company who has an award against them, and then you kind of say, okay, well, they're you know their net revenues. This is like ninety percent of their net revenues. This recovery, so then we can't award it, or else you'll shut down this company right. just on the recovery alone. Like mm-hmm. you just can't make that argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but the only. Sorry, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, sorry. I was just thinking that the punitive damages argument was an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. No, that's because a- if if it is, um, you know, so disconnected with the amount of of investment, it's. I'm not saying it's a good or bad argument. It's just an interesting, an interesting argument that's been made. Yeah, I don't know who's acting on behalf of Nigeria, but I thought that was clever as well. That 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 uh, resonates more than the oh loss of profits. That seems like a lot of money. <laughs> which, is not, which is not a great argument. <laughs> no. Yeah. So we have one more. One more, number four on the list, and that's the biggest exit award in history so far. Can you get five out of five, Sonia? Is it Enron? No. N- no, but it's one of those companies <laughs> in the general <laughs> family of big, evil American energy companies. Evil. Chevron? <gasps> Oh, almost. It's Conoco Phillips versus Venezuela. Oh, oh right. I can't really <laughs> of course, perfect. after the fact, we're like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's uh, a, a slightly uh, older claim that's been going on since, I think, 2007. And Conoco Phillips was awarded almost $9 billion too. So it's close to the Nigerian case. Uh, and there were actually other awards, which is why I think it's something that rings a bell. I think there are two or three other Conoco Phillips uh, versus Venezuela awards, but for much smaller uh, amounts. This case we've talked about on the podcast before you joined us, Adia, uh, when uh, George Abisab uh, issued a dissenting opinion and then resigned from the tribunal. And he, was, he wasn't very happy. And I've cited and actually read out that dissenting opinion, I think, twice already. <laughs> yeah, you love that one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he, he had himself actually uh, replaced Ian Brownlee, uh, who died in a car accident in, in Egypt. And then Abisab was then also replaced himself by Andreas Bucher, I think. So mm-hmm. this is obviously another case that went on forever. But the award only came this year, which would support your general idea, Brian, that I don't agree with necessarily, that we see more and more of these major awards as time uh, goes by. Mm. Uh, so it's from March 2019 and again enforcement's ongoing um, and this is I don't know how closely do you guys read IA Reporter and, and be honest not as close as you do <laughs> this is our he's one of the he's, you're the writer of IA Reporter aren't you um, I uh, read through the um, what is it the weekly or the is it does it come every week or every two week um, uh, newsletter that I get and when there is an article that I am interested in I do click on it I have to say yes mm, yeah. very good much better answer than Brian <laughs> <laughs> now don't so, test me on that though because uh, now I'm worried about what he's yeah what do you next. have to say <laughs> No, I, this is not something that we've been covering a lot. We just, I think we've flagged it a couple of times because there is an interesting development generally with Venezuela, which maybe we can turn into a segment at some point now that, as we know, there are two competing administrations uh, yeah. cl- claiming to speak for Venezuela. So that has featured into the enforcement of the ConocoPhillips 
award as well that it's not just Maduro but also Guaido who now claims to speak for Venezuela which sort of uh, complicates the whole proceeding uh, of the of the enforcement case in the DC uh, I don't know DC Circuit Court of Appeals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe well that go- that's like our public declaration segment really that's mm. that right so okay that's nerds in London and elsewhere the five biggest arbitral awards we think one Yukus versus Russia two Falid Al Karkani et al versus Chevron and Aramco three P and ID versus Nigeria four and here come the exit cases Conoco Phillips versus Venezuela and Tethian Copper versus Pakistan these are the five biggest arbitral awards just looking at them now together they amount to not really but almost 100 billion us and so yeah so what uh, brian was saying is that what is it four out of the five or three out of the five were in the at least the last five years correct mm-hmm. yeah that's actually a great point huh and the two at least two or three out of the five were last year yeah yeah huh yeah yeah there was i mean for a long time the biggest exit award was in occidental yet another of these companies right, that i keep right, yeah. confusing which was like one point something billion and then reduced to just like one billion that was for a long yeah, time the biggest yeah. exit award and now we can add two more just from 2019 to that list so that's actually yeah. a good point i mean i don't know what that means but well i mean these cases have started earlier yeah. so we can't really say that it is in the past yeah, five years but there's limited there's data points, definitely there's definitely some comfort, A, with experts backing bigger numbers and also tribunals willing to grant greater awards. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, would, you don't want to be the person who has issued a decision for the biggest arbitral award. But then if you're issuing now a $3 billion award, whereas before it would have been this crazy claim, now you're right. saying, well, I mean, you look at you, yeah. look at these other ones. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, this the, the goalpost like has, been, has been moved yeah. now. yeah. That's a great point. Who knows? But um, hopefully they just get bigger and bigger. Hopefully they get bigger <laughs> and bigger. <laughs> 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 okay, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, let, I'll let that be the note that we'll end on. Otherwise, we'll never end and I would have to go up in the ring and fight you on that strange statement. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a joke. Controversial. Um, okay, well, uh, let's move on. Okay, so our next segment here, um, we're going to speak about the differences between ad hoc and institutional. Um, Brian, Joel, are you still with me? <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. Yes, I am. So far, so good. I mean, that's a question that is both elementary and at the same time, it's one of the things like everyone thinks they know what the difference is. Um, and when you start talking about it, even with colleagues and everything, I just realized there are so many misconceptions. Yeah. So I, I'll test those min- misconceptions with you. But one of the things, and that's the reason why um, I wanted to address that topic today, um, is is also because we've been discussing it um, recently, actually. Uh, we organized with the International Business Law Journal a roundtable discussion here in this, these offices at Jeet with uh, a number of institutional representatives. And the topic was um, arbitral institutions, a necessity or a burden. 
<laughs> so it's super Ouch. provocative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so we thought, well, either people are just going to ignore invitation or, but they, um, no, they, uh, most of the major institutions were represented. We had some regional institutions coming in as well. And it was an extremely interesting debate. Um, and I think the whole um, intro and, and the discussion was around that topic about, you know, whether or not there is still a necessity of this institution. I mean, when you look about um, how many, and also that's a recent trend in the last five years, I would say, there's been a mushrooming, and we've been using that term, of institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and as someone noted during that discussion, mushrooms, they come in all shapes and sizes, and some of them are poisonous. <laughs> oh, I like this Um, And it's not necessarily a good thing, you know, and so then you had some people debating whether or not it was good for competition, etc. And so it comes back to that, to that question is when you have a user come in, uh, a company come in, a client come into you, and they have an arbitration clause, which gives you a choice between ad hoc and institutional, um, you know, what what are you going to recommend, right? And so as a, as a lawyer, you would respond, it depends yeah. <laughs> on a multiple <laughs> set of reasons. Yeah. But what are, what, are the, what are the topics for which you're going to say it depends? I mean, just, you know, I mean, ad hoc, just to go back on the definitions, ad hoc is what is not institutional, okay? Right. And institutional <laughs> is arbitration is one that is administered by the institutional rules. So it could be an ICC arbitration, it could be an exit arbitration, it could be, you know, any other institutional rules, and they govern the procedure of the arbitration. Um, and I think one of the major misconceptions that, uh, you know, people have when they make the choice as to whether it's ad hoc or institutional is that they think it's black or white. Mm. And uh, and that's a question I have for you, Brian, and also for you, Jewel, and what you've seen, is have you seen a mix of both and how much do you, and the second question is, how much do you think the divide is between ad hoc and institutional? Um, you know, if there's any data available, what would you say the majority of cases are? Can can I just ask a point of terminology just to make sure we're on the yes. same page, or rather to make sure that I am on any page because I'm not really sure. Yes, yes. And th- th- that is, uncentral arbitration rules are of course popularly referred to as ad hoc arbitration rules that use for ad hoc arbitration, but they are increasingly increasingly used in cases that are administered by an institution, and there is no uncentral institution, obviously. So it is by definition uh, an administering institution that has no connection to uncentral. So it could be an ICC, an SEC, or a PCA, frequently in investment treaty cases. Do we still call those ad hoc arbitrations? Because I get the impression that people do. But to me, those are institutional, notwithstanding the fact that it's not the institution's own rules that apply. It's still, if it is administered by an institution, regardless of the rules being used, it is not an ad hoc arbitration in my world. Well, I that is... That is correct, and that is a really good point because I, actually I had a case like that where we fought about what it meant because we had ancestral rules and it was um, administered by the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. Mm. And there was a whole question as to is it a Hong Kong International Arbitration Center you know, administered institutional proceeding or is it an ad hoc mm-hmm. yeah. with yeah. the aid of the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center? Um, and and uh, and obviously it wasn't just for definitions or theoretic discussion. It actually mattered. It mattered, and and the reason why it mattered in this case was because uh, 
China. <laughs> right. And uh, and I don't know if you know a lot of our listeners know this. Um, I just assumed that people would know that, but it turns out a lot of people don't know that until recently, at least. Um, and also in certain circumstances now, there are some limitations. But um, in in China, ad hoc arbitrations are not considered valid, right? So mm. we could have had this ad hoc proceeding, um, get a very successful award, and then when time came to enforce it in China, well, sorry. Right. Um, <laughs> I didn't even think about so that. So it does but... matter. It does matter. for Only for that example, it matters. Mm-hmm. Um but yes, to answer to your question, Joel, um, it, you can. There's an increasingly. You're right. There's 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 an increasing practice of referring to the ancestral rules, uh, but you still have. You you could have it as administered by an institution, and I think there's different layers of here. I mean, it, there's some investment arbitrations where you can refer to the ancestral rules, and then, for example. And just to give a, a quick example, in the ancestral rules themselves, uh, when you appoint uh, an arbitrator and um, there's a disagreement as to the appointment of the arbitrators, then what do you do under the ancestral rules? Does anybody know? Mm, you have to go to the PCA, PCA and get exactly. the designated an appointing authority. Right. So the PCA is an appointing authority. And so when the PCA acts as an appointing authority, does it transform it into an administered proceeding under the PCA? No, mm, no. I think that's a, a, a closed know. box. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. Like you, you know, because you're referring to the ancestral rules, and they become an appointing authority. It doesn't. And you're right. It doesn't transform them in, a, in an institutional arbitration. It still remains an ad hoc arbitration. True, but they uh, do administer a lot of treaty-based cases. Just in addition to the to the appointing authority thingy, they are often designated by the parties of the tribunal to actually administer, and they have the whole, you know, with the secretariat and the. Uh, assistance by the Peace Palace hearing things and, and everything. And then I would imagine that it's actually not an ad hoc case, then it's a PCA exactly. case. Exactly. And I think that's the, the difference between uh, whether you know it becomes ad hoc or institutional. And in fact, some parties get confused also as to that. And I had uh, an example of a less maybe uh, used institution, which is the CPR Institute. I don't mm-hmm. know if you if you guys know about the CPR Institute, the Conflict Prevention Resolution Institute based in New York. Um, We had one of the representatives uh, talk to us and they actually offer both services, ad hoc and and, uh, institutional. And and they offer ad hoc services, then it's by definition not ad hoc anymore. Right? But that's that's your definition, I think. <laughs> well, how can they offer ad hoc if it's not ad hoc anymore by definition? What do you mean by that? I mean, it's, if, if an institution is offering its services, that right. in my world I, renders it an institutional arbitration, regardless of the brand that they put on it. Well, it depends what they do, and it depends yeah. to what level they are involved. See, that's the thing. Well, so the SEC has published, because I actually sent a case to the SEC that was an institutional case, and because I, I wanted them, because I didn't think that the respondent would respond. So I wanted an institute to kind of like mm-hmm. have that hand-holding of the case, and mm-hmm. they said, we oh. actually don't have any guidelines yet. Then they published their guidelines. So now the SEC has on their website published guidelines on what they do to administer, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. to move along an ad hoc uncertral case. Mm-hmm. And I think for most institutions, they should do that because it kind of delineates or preserves the ad hoc nature of the dispute. But 
that dispute administered what well, ended up being administered by the SEC um, was purely ad hoc. Can I ask you both, since you advise people on this every now and then, and I don't, and and also partly to answer your initial question, Sadia, what is there a scenario where you would say, oh, ad hoc, a pure ad hoc arbitration here with no institution and only like a domestic arbitration act as the legal framework? That is exactly what suits this dispute optimally. That's what we're going to do. Does that ever happen? Because that's, that's what we say. We, so that's, never <laughs> that's a rhetoric question. Um, the answer to that question, as you know, is in my lifetime, short lifetime. It has not happened. It has not happened. It might happen in the future, but it has not happened. Same, um, yeah. This is Same my this is my perspective as as a you know someone who would who gives advice. But does I that ask, mean that ad hoc arbitration, in the pure sense of the word, only exists because parties uh, uh, do things that are not advisable, and that's the only reason we still have pure ad hoc cases? Because I've never met a, a practicing lawyer who said that, that they've actually actively sought that kind of case they've been dealt it a few times like by a bad arbitration clause that they could not get out of well that's what i heard is. someone recommend it it's in the clause because even if i mean they'll really only argument for that would be a flexibility and b costs and anybody who's kind of been through the ringer on a pure ad hoc case knows that the costs can greatly exceed an institutional yeah arbitration. that's exactly that was one of the misconception also people have sometimes with ad hoc is yes of course um Autonomy of the parties, right? I mean, the basic cornerstone of arbitration is the parties get to use whatever they want. They they do whatever they want. So right. some parties may theoretically prefer to decide exactly which rules that are going to apply to their um, relationship and, and not refer to an institutional rule, right? And they provide for that in the contract. And I've seen multiple contracts with, sorry, uh, you know, with, with specific rules and not even referring to unsatural rules, like we're just ad hoc rules, right? So then you can think, okay, autonomy of the parties, et cetera, why did they do this? Because they maybe they wanted to save costs. And, and very quickly you realize that it, it may become actually much more expensive mm -hmm. because, you know, first blockage, you know, I mean, there are different steps of the proceedings, right? You start a proceeding, the first first thing you do is what do you do? I mean, you file a request, right? Mm. I mean, where you, you had you had an interesting episode on that, on on the issues and the problematics uh, related to serving a notice of arbitration, which is which I don't think is is a theoretical issue. I mean, it is a real issue, and so having an institution help you with that is is first of all, you know, an, an added value on that sense. Okay, so if you don't have that, how do you deal with it? Mm. It costs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, where do you go? The, the advice costs. Second blockage that you can have, you know, the other party doesn't want to appoint an arbitrator. They just yeah. don't want to. Okay. They want to do anything with arbitration. What do you do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, how do you, okay, you haven't even defined an appointing authority. How do you do that? Okay. You have an appointing authority. You got to pay for the appointing authority. Right. 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 Unless it's a domestic court. If it's pure ad hoc and you have like the Swiss yeah. Arbitration Act or something, you have to go to a Swiss court and have them appoint right. an arbitrator, which is not necessarily expensive, but takes a long time typically. Well, time and costs, right? I yeah. mean, yeah. Legal that's fees, the thing. Yeah. Legal yeah. fees, time and costs. Same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I, I, you know, I do realize I sound like an advocate for institutional arbitration. But which, that's my point. Aren't we all? <laughs> Isn't every well, arbitration lawyer essentially advocate? That's the thing. I think there are some options where you could have a mix of both. So you could have institutional light. So it's still institutional, but you can decide certain things. 
to take a concrete example, if you want to go to ICC arbitration and there's a blockage on the arbitral, you know, appointment of the third arbitral, uh, 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 sorry, arbitrator, mm-hmm. you, you, you possibly, and it can be, and, and sometimes our users tell us, they don't want the institution to appoint the chair. Mm-hmm. They want to still have the control of that thing. So you could provide for, you know, change the rules in that respect and have the parties decide or the at least the two arbitrators decide who is going to sit as the third arbitrator, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you can you can adapt the rules yeah. a certain way and have the institution back off on certain things. Uh, and, and conversely, you can still have an ad hoc arbitration and think that all you need the institution for is for appointing an arbitrator and that's it, end of story. Mm-hmm. And then the rest you'll manage. Um, and that, that would still be an ad hoc arbitration. Right. That's I think I've point. seen, uh, I think the biggest difference I saw in a discussion I was with a client was an investment arbitration because if you mm-hmm. have ICSID versus UNSATRAL, if we're calling UNSATRAL Joel's ad hoc, yeah. um, <laughs> then you have a then you have a huge thing with regards to seat, enforcement, you know, um, yeah, appeal, not appeal, but you know, like taking it to the ad hoc committee. Um, so you you have a lot of considerations in that, that context more so than you would in commercial arbitration. Well, true, mm-hmm. because if you have an investment arbitration, then going through ICSID is is in itself, you know, a guarantee of of how the arbitration is going to function at least for the enforcement and annulment mm-hmm. side. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought about this now. This is actually something we should have flagged, and that's my bad because I'm the IU reporter guy. But I, you probably saw as well that the first case has been brought against the European Union now. Yes. Uh, Nord Stream has brought one against the European Union, and it has not been reported if it's an institutional or an ad hoc, what kind of institutional arbitration it is. But the European Union is not a state and not as such a member to ICSID. Mm-hmm. So it has to be outside of ICSID, which made me think about these things that I always talk about with place of arbitration and the implications of being outside of ICSID, that it's probably going to be a pretty big fight as to the place of arbitration, which matters now if it's a an SEC arbitration, for example, in the hypothetical scenario when that's the, the kind of case that they are actually requesting here, then maybe the tendency is to have Stockholm as a seat of arbitration. But if it's an uncentral arbitration, there's no uh, specified institution in mm-hmm. the ECT. So we don't know who, if any entity at all, will administer this major case if it's an uncentral case. Uh, and what kind of place of arbitration, for example, who would even decide the place of arbitration if it's a pure ad hoc case? Huh. We yeah, don't really know yet. Exactly. I mean, that's that's one of the key things, like you said, in investment arbitration. The difference is when people talk about the seat of arbitration that you don't have that discussion in exit arbitration, right? right? And um, and and we we tend to think this automatically, but in fact, a lot of people don't don't realize that it matters, especially now with the intra-EU stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially when the, when the EU is apart. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so that, that all brings brings me back to, to that question of why institutional arbitration, you know, matters and what is the role of institutions? I mean, we talked about, um, you know, some of their roles. So we talked about the appointment of arbitrators. Any other role that you think is, is important? Brian, that you would what challenges to arbitrators? So it's still related to arbitrators, still related yeah. To arbitrators. So challenges to arbitrators. Keeping the funds, Keeping acting funds? as a third party for like advance on cost and paying out to arbitrators. That's something you don't want to deal with as a party because it can get a bit uncomfortable. Absolutely. I mean, who deals with it if um, if the institution doesn't? Mm-hmm. 
that's also a you know a valid question but at the beginning that's exactly how it is you got you have to have somebody pay for the arbitration right yeah. uh, and who who's if if the other party is not paying then you're going to advance the cost but who's going to keep this yeah, money yeah what, what what do you do practically speaking i've never thought about it. you put it in escrow somewhere probably in like a bank I account imagine so i yeah. imagine so yeah, yeah you do or i mean or they just send you invoice like rolling invoices um, so they do, you do it in stages. So they'll say, oh, yeah. you know, after we've read up on the case, once the initial transfer of the notice is sent, then they yeah. then they send you an invoice. But that, I mean, I hated that as counsel. And yeah. you're trying to count, you're trying to tell your client, oh, hey, where, some more money, please, in order for you to get your rights <laughs> vindicated. Yeah. And also, there's no one reviewing like the arbitrator's costs. I mean, oh no, right. there's also mm. this supervisory role, right, that the institution mm. is supposed mm. to have with respect to the behavior of the arbitrators, and more and more so happening. I mean, recently there's been some changes, right? The all the institutions are vouching for to control in a way the arbitrators. They're Availability, um, right, and even even adjust the fees they get depending yeah, on the time. Exactly. On time. Yeah. yeah, the timing of the award, how they're behaved or not. I asked the institution as I can't quote what was told to me by whom, but I can. I asked them. I said, "Do you have blacklists?" And all of them said, "Yes." <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, and you know they're not official blacklists, but mm -hmm. they said, you know, I mean, they were laughing, but they were saying, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a movable thing, you know. It's not like you're on there and you'll stay there forever. But of course, you know. So there is this po policing, policing. Como, how do you say it? Supervisory uh, police, you know, role that the that the institutions are are, are playing. Um, there's also, you know, of course, the the role of scrutiny that institutions play, but to a lesser extent, because not all institutions do that, right? Yeah, I mean, prim primarily the ICC, I think. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The LCIA doesn't do it. For example, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce doesn't do it. Um, but there's also, and that was the interesting thing, is, is, is people forget, and that's not related directly to the choice of whether or not you're going to choose ad hoc versus institution, but the institutions have a much, much wider role to play today in arbitration. Um, than just the everyday administration. Um, and, and I was curious to, I mean, just curious. I mean, do you think the institution has a, has a new role to play that has played another role than just the administration? I mean, do you have any examples of what the institutions may do? Oh, yeah, well, I think about this a lot. Sorry, yeah, Brian. Love, no, I'm literally <laughs> going to defer to you, Joel. Joel loves this topic. Come on, Joel. I looked at it primarily, of course, from from the treaty arbitration uh, perspective, but I think it applies equally to the commercial arbitration one. I mean, they are actors in the field; they are drivers of the field. They they come up with things like all the things we've talked about now, and like rules for arbitrator challenges. So they come up with emergency arbitration or like provisional measures or so many other things that that they are like identifying best practice while also moving the needle on what is best practice. They come to the conferences, they come to your law firm and talk about things like this and I think it would be naive to say that they are just purely administering cases I think they are obviously like actors themselves mm -hmm. in the field and, and influencing um, not just the where people choose to have their disputes but how uh, well do you do you think that they're overstepping or do you think that this is a matter of them competing with other institutions and finding new competitive advantages and that's why they're moving the needle forward I think it's a little bit of both. 
I don't think yeah. they're overstepping. I think they do a pretty good job of being sensitive. And if I've, I've observed those that do participate in the Uncertal Working Group, and I think they do a very good job of just every time basically the SEC or the ICC or ICSID intervenes, they, they make very clear either expressly or by the way they frame their interventions that they are only there to provide information like statistics and experiences mm -hmm. to aid the states that are about to change the system. And that is my general sense when they go to conferences as well, that they are not there with an agenda of their own. And mm -hmm. it's not really uh, considered to be polite to, to overtly compete with other institutions. Maybe that's my just Swedish slash SCC perspective. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's like some overt competition happening. There is some competition happening, but it's also true that there are certain, you know, there are certain arbitrations that are better suited for certain institutions. I mean, yeah. regionally mm -hmm. speaking, I mean, mm -hmm. yes, we're, they're all supposed to be international arbitration institutions, but... You know, maybe you would prefer, depending on, on where your client is and where the assets are, to have your arbitration seated somewhere else or, or you know, administered by a separate institution for other reasons. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I um, yeah, I mean, Joel, for, on what you were saying, that is absolutely true. And I think people forget that uh, that major role uh, that institutions are playing on, and, and you cited certain examples, so times and time and cost, for example. I mean, there's been a, a number of measures taken by the institutions themselves to try to make, you know, arbitrations less expensive and and more efficient. And then they, their role, and that's what they were saying, is we provide you with a toolbox you know, that you can use and that the arbitrators can use, of course, mm. to uh, to make make the arbitration uh, more efficient. And that that we've seen to be to be true. I mean, as a user, at least I, I can see that to be true. There's also a role recently. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, arbitrator appointments and diversity and so on. I mean, unless, you know, and I, I, I truly believe that I think the onus is not just on the institution, but it is also on the institution to make to make that happen mm. um, and we've seen a lot of um, a lot of changes from the institutions themselves yeah. in making that happen so just the last um, couple of years in yeah. just in the last couple of years exactly and we can see the data and we see that it has changed um, and also there's another point that has been mentioned is the whole technological challenge mm. I mean you know we're we're talking about cybersecurity and all these cyber threats and 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 everything in arbitration uh, is especially in these big arbitrations that you mentioned are so politically sensitive um, in the investment arbitration field at least and in other arbitration there's confidentiality issues I mean you necessarily want to make sure um, that if it is administered you you have an institution that is on top of the game with respect to what you know i called a technological challenge yeah. but it's so much yeah, more yeah, yeah. than right um and so they also have a role to play there and they are they are actively playing a role there um yeah they're working so, this yeah. lot setting up like digital platforms so that you don't have to communicate via like arbitrator x at gmail.com when it's a yeah. super confidential document yeah. that you're attaching but that that I mean that goes to another benefit of an institution because if you have three individual lawyers sitting as your tribunal in an ad hoc arbitration and you say okay I want to have like all of these security measures in place and I want all everything to be encrypted and they they would have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> they would have no idea. No, but it's for sure, for sure. Where do we start? Uh, they, yeah, exactly. Where do we start? Like oh. Let's pay my very expensive secretary to set this up for us. And then you have a whole nother <laughs> per hour charge to tell your client about. 
Uh, well, so, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, I mean, I didn't want to conclude in, in, in saying anything, um, you know, against or for, you know, one specific model, because I, I genuinely do believe, Joel, that it, because to, to go to your, to your question earlier, that it does depend um, if you have an arbitration that's better suited to be ad hoc or institutional or in between. Mm. But it is true that in my experience, um, in the cases that I have dealt at least, institutions and now especially since you have such a diverse uh palette of of institutions right? right i mean you have uh you have of course the big ones you have some regional ones you have some that offer you know more or less services um i i think that it, it is probably best suited to have a an institutional arbitration and and the and this is this i'm speaking on behalf of the in-house council that were there in the room um they were c categoric in saying that they would prefer institutional arbitration so hmm. you have it yeah they're the the people that matter i mean the users right yeah. i mean it could be yeah. the states as well but at least the perspective from the from the companies were you know i mean yeah we want something that's clear and uh, yeah, we delegate, yeah, I mean, predictability. And also in a way you're delegating your, so it's again, to go back to the autonomy, to autonomy of the parties and you're, you're delegating your, your power to another institution, you know, to another organ uh, for decision-making on certain points that you don't want to deal with. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like democracy really. <laughs> right or or your power in the not to get too much philosophical or political into this but it is uh, the the english people voted for brexit no i'm just kidding i don't want to get into that <laughs> that would have been an even more a plus segment exactly. <laughs> We are sitting here with Elizabeth Rimmer, who is the CEO of Lawcare, a UK-based organization, a charity organization um, that focuses on mental health. And as I was just telling you before we started talking on air, is that um, we had talked about work-life balance, but we never really talked about mental health. Um, and that's really what Lawcare does, which is an awareness a charitable awareness organization to kind of specifically target lawyers to say, we need to be more mindful about this balance. Do you want to just kind of introduce the organization and let us know yeah. how it all became to be? Sure. So uh, Lawcare is a charity registered in the UK that's here to support and promote good mental health and well-being throughout the legal community. Um, and we grew out of an initiative of the Law Society in England and Wales, who back in the 90s were worried about how much lawyers, solicitors were drinking, uh, alcohol being a way of coping with the pressures of life in the law. And so over time, um, we have grown to cover all branches of the legal profession um, in the UK, all the jurisdictions, and also the Republic of Ireland. And we're really here to raise awareness about why mental health matters for lawyers, why it's so important to our work as lawyers that we look after our minds, but also to let people know that there's lots of support out there for anybody who is experiencing some difficulties, because it can be really hard for lawyers to put their hand up and say, I'm struggling with something. It's very stigmatized to talk openly about our mental health. We're worried that people think we're not a good enough lawyer or that we're weak or it'll be a career limiting step. So we really want to challenge that stigma so that people can come forward for the support that's out there as well. Right. I mean, 
all that I know is you see an associate say, oh, they went on burnout, and then it's like they disappear into the abyss and can maybe come back six months later and think like, oh, they can't handle it. Mm-hmm. But that's really the stigma that you're talking about. We are. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing certainly in the UK and growing, I mean, there are organizations like Law Care in other parts of the world. So in the United States, every state has a lawyer assistance program, which provides support and training and education for lawyers around mental health and addiction. Um, there are growing organizations in other countries like Spain and Germany. Um, New Zealand and Australia have well-established programs as well. Um, but that's exactly it, that this sense that it's almost game over if something goes wrong with your mental health and you're not well and you're off work, that you're never going to get back to where you were. And that just isn't true. And so what we're seeing now is more people in the legal profession speaking openly about their mental health and telling their stories of depression or anxiety or time off being ill and how they've got through that and they've come back and actually they found it a learning experience that they've learned how to work smarter or better. Um, so it doesn't mean just because um, you've had some mental health problems that that, that, that that doesn't mean that you're not a good lawyer or that you can't do this work. Right. So if someone does have a problem, how does your organization respond to that? So we provide support for people working in the legal sector. That includes lawyers and also support staff and people in other roles within law firms or in chambers. Um, we run a telephone helpline. Uh, which is staffed by trained volunteers and members of law care staff and everybody who answers the phone is a lawyer and what we provide is emotional support we provide a safe place to talk about something that's bothering you or worrying you it could be an issue at work you might be having a difficult relationship with a colleague or you may feel very overwhelmed by your workload or you may be worried about a mistake that you've made, or you might have something going on in your personal life. You may have been recently bereaved, or you've got elderly parents that you're caring for. So whatever's going on, you can call us, talk to someone, and we'll try and help you work out what's going on for you, what steps you can take to um, make things better. What we find is that usually just talking to someone and getting something off your chest can just make you feel so much better and feel reassured that you're not the only person that's, that's going through that. You know, in, in over, we were set up in 97, so in over 20 years, we have listened to thousands and thousands of lawyers tell us their stories. Um, and we provide that reassurance that, um, if you, that you can take action and, and things can get better. We were, um, that's lawyer to lawyer, um, why you hire lawyers to, or have lawyer volunteers to answer these phone calls, I think is because they kind of understand that situation and one of the slides that you showed us when you gave the presentation was um, what characteristics of what personal characteristics make a lawyer predisposed to this type of thing Mm. can do you remember what those were yeah so we we know that lawyers have higher rates of stress anxiety and depression when compared to the general public so the question is why is that so there's been quite a lot of work looking at the kinds of people that become lawyers and lawyers thinking styles and also the environment that lawyers work in and we know that some of those uh, approaches to thinking that can be great skills and attributes for lawyerly work like prudence pessimism perfectionism can also have a flip side if, if they're not managed well as thinking styles that can predispose you to poor mental health and well-being so when we think about legal work 
Um, the work requires prudence. Lawyers have to look at things very carefully. They've got to analyze it. They've got to be critical. They're often looking for the worst case scenario, um, which brings in that sort of pessimistic look at things. And then there's the perfectionism that is very hard for lawyers not to dot every I and cross every T uh, because of the very high standards that they're held to. Um, and so it can also make it very hard to delegate work or get other people to do things for you. Yeah. And this sense of self-sufficiency that, you know, I am a lawyer, I solve other people's problems, I don't have any problems of my own. Everyone's coming to me to fix things for them. So those sorts of traits and, and ways of approaching and thinking about things. Also, a very common lawyer trait is overthinking. So coming out of court or off the phone call or out of a meeting and just running over that scenario over and over again in your mind thinking about what you could have said differently or what people might have thought of you so all of these things um can uh are not if they're not managed can be sort of unhealthy ways about approaching things that can impact mental health yeah at my previous firm um a female senior associate and i do, maybe you can talk about the a gender difference between that because mm. I feel like women are much harder on themselves to be that strive to perfection and it probably has to do with a lot of gender imbalance in the workplace um, but she missed or incorrectly cited five points in the record which is out of the thousands of citations I think that is quite minimal but for her it was if it's not 100% then it's wrong mm. which is kind of the standard that we hold ourselves up to mm. be so how do you how do we reconcile that with um, the pressure from the senior uh, senior associate or the partners coming down on you for any error with um, your mental health at the end of the day? Well, I guess to some extent it's about taking some perspective and putting that in context. So did it matter that right. there were five mistakes there? What was the consequence of that? Everybody's making makes mistakes i think if you went into any law firm and sat around a table and asked people to put their hand up and say have you ever made a mistake every single hand would go up right and actually i heard a really interesting um example of how some law firms are looking at this is they had an open session with um partners in the firm with with more junior associates where they sat around and they had partners tell other people in the firm about mistakes they had made and then had an open discussion about it, almost saying, you know, look where I am. I've made a mistake. It was okay. Right. And I think the the issue around that really is that if, if you have made a mistake that's of significant consequence, is to do something about it as soon as possible. We get a lot of calls on our helpline from people who may have made errors five or ten years ago that they're still worrying about. <laughs> uh, what we will always say to people is, you know, if you've if you've made an error that is a breach of a professional misconduct rule, we're not going to tell the regulator, but we will encourage you to tell your firm and do something about it. But you know, nine times out of 10, most mistakes can be fixed. And if they can't be fixed, well, then that's what you've got insurance for. And if you are, if you come forward and talk about it earlier, you've got a much better chance of rectifying that problem right. than if you sit on it but it can be very hard to make that admission when you feel that what you do has to be perfect and there's no room for error in the sense that it can't just be good enough 
to get it over the line. It, it's got to be perfect. And uh, we've got some resources about perfectionism mm. on our website, um, specifically around lawyers' mentality around that. But it is a challenge. It is yeah. a challenge. It's yeah. The whole thing is quite a challenge because when we've, I mean, the, as you you said in the presentation, that the discussion on mental health and law has been kind of in a in a circular rotation for a while that we just keep being at the same level of we're just talking about it um, and it's not really being implemented because when they say you know we've had a lot of um, work-life balance people come in here and be like just meditate for 10 minutes or mm. and you're, you're like I don't have 10 minutes um, can you tell me something that I can actually use um, do you so you know that the, the, there's a lot of naysayers I must I must imagine that are coming. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a sense certainly in, you know, the law is a very hierarchical profession and I think you see a lot of senior people think, come on, I've been there, done it, got the t-shirt, pull your socks up, what are you now complaining it's your turn. about? <laughs> yeah. Now it's your turn. But, you know, I think the world of work and the expectation from the workplace has changed and that there is a greater recognition about the importance of our mental health, um, particularly for lawyers and why that matters to our work. You know, our minds our greatest assets of lawyers as lawyers and we need to look after our minds if we're going to be doing the best work for our clients and our firm and our colleagues we have to look after our minds and it can be a challenge to find that time in 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 the daytime but what it is it's about building things into your day so you know for example i am currently trying to be better at exercising <laughs> i have started walking to the train station when i would always either drive or get a taxi so this morning I, it takes me 22 minutes to walk which really isn't that far right and it's always thinking about little things you can put into your day that will make a difference but also being really boundaried about your time in the way that you block out time in your calendar for your work you need to block out time in your calendar for yourself um, because what happens when we're under pressure or busy we just let all those other things slide we think i just need to get i need to get this finished i need to get this done i need to make this call uh, i need to log on to work on a saturday morning rather than thinking um, you know, I will go to football right. or I will go to my book club or I'll go out with my friends on a Friday and we sacrifice that me and family and social time, which actually is so important to our mental health because we know that staying connected and being with the people that we're close to and feeling part of something really improves our mental health and helps us to stay well. Yeah, I think you were saying it's, it's extremely critical for junior lawyers and I feel like mm. what junior lawyers are not good at is saying putting their foot down in a certain situation. I remember booking vacation as a junior lawyer. I would always be like, waiting for the time plans to be set in stone and then I would book my vacation in a very like perfect you know hole in that time plan mm. and then someone would get an extension and then the whole thing was off and then I would just say you know what I'll just cancel my plans and I'll you know of course I'll stay at work whereas now I think people are are when you become more senior you realize a it can be done an hour later um, and B, if I don't take this now, I'm never going to be able to take it. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, the agency is also, you know, you've got to empower yourself. You do need to empower yourself. And I think also senior people need to recognize the value of this, that if um, a junior colleague has got time booked out in the calendar, you know, they might be going to a family wedding in Italy or they might have a lifetime trip planned. And, and if that then is canceled, that's a huge disappointment to them. It also has an impact on them in terms of how they regard the environment that they're working in and the values of the organization. It's about making people feel valued as well. But 
I think it's so important to recognize that we need time out and that that needs to be respected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a growing recognition of that, that younger people, we know there was a large study done by the American Bar Association in 2016, uh, published 12,500 lawyers across the U.S., And what it showed is that one of the most vulnerable times in a lawyer's career is making the transition into practice. So junior lawyers coming into the profession do need nurturing and good supervision, and they need to develop good, healthy habits in the workplace as well. So recognizing that, that they um, are not just sort of indispensable commodities that can be moved around to fit in with an organization's right. <laughs> business, you know, is an important thing that is, is valuing and nurturing them because then they're more likely to want to stay in your organization if they feel they're well-treated and right. valued and respected. And we talked about this before, but coming from a Scandinavian, I mean, this podcast originated in Sweden and um, they were very, you know, Uh, encouraging to do this type of initiative but they were also if you wanted to go to the gym between 3 and 4 p.m which is smack dab in the middle of the day that was completely fine they would call you on the phone saying where are you say i'm in the gym they're like let me know when you get back instead Mm. of why are you there it's work hours type of thing and and the same thing with vacation and Mm. you know firms play a big policy on oh we'll compensate you if we have to cancel your vacation or um Unlimited vacation days, for example, as a way to recruit people, and then it's just a big. Does that really work? No. Unlimited. Va- I mean, no. if you have unlimited vacation days, how many can you actually take? Yeah, like three or four. <laughs> yeah. Whereas you know, in in I know it's different across the world, but in the UK, um, you know, the minimum legal requirement I think is twenty days vacation. Most people get 25 or I get 30 mm-hmm. um, and it's a big factor when you're looking at a position is how much holiday is there right. and I think it's good working practice to encourage people to take holidays because we need time off our brains are not designed to be no. switched on all the time um, and in some areas of law well all areas of law really there's a long hours working culture which is endemic you know if you're working regularly 70 to 80 hours a week you need a break from that Mm -hmm. and you need when you're on holiday it's not always possible but to really switch off is the other big danger is people go on holiday but they take the office with them (laughs) um, courtesy of their mobile phone and their laptop exactly and that's not a break because the minute you log in and you look at an email your mind has gone straight back to your desk you're back in the workplace and there might be something brewing at work that if you're away for a week or two, that by the time you got back, it could have been resolved and you would never have needed to even known about it or have been involved in it. But because you've checked in, you then are, t- are going through that. And there are lots of strategies for that. I mean, some people can't switch off. They, they, they feel stressed if they're not checking in on the office. It's about managing that, thinking, right, I'll check my email in the morning right. and I'll check at the end of the day and I'm not going to do anything in between and make it very clear you only want to be contacted if, you know, the building's on fire. Right. Um, but that is a challenge, you know, with the sort of hyper-connected world that we live in. Actually, we've just brought out some new tips on managing email. And I think that is a... a uh, a big challenge is that sort of hyper-connected world and the expectation mm. that comes with that when, you know, people email you and then literally a day later, I emailed you yesterday and I haven't heard from you. And it's like, well, you know what? I haven't got to that yet. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to do something else. Um, so we, we're always on and there's always stuff coming at us. Right. And that's why I think even more so 
getting that downtime and taking holiday um, is really important because it's about looking after ourselves. Um, and that's a healthy remedy. The unhealthy remedy is the drinking drugs. Yes. And which is definitely something when I started law school, because you said that this is an American focused yes. problem. Mm. When I started law school, they gave us a couple of tips the dean did. This is the first thing I heard out of his mouth. And it was one, you're going to, we're going to train you to think completely different thing than you ever thought before. And the second one is you're going to drink a lot. Try to do it in moderation. <laughs> and I was, I was like, wait a second. What is this? And then, but clearly this is a, a bit of an epidemic. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's how law care started was through uh, concern about alcohol. And bear in mind, that was at a time before people had, in the 90s, early 90s, no one had mobile phones or laptops. Now, if you wanted to work late, you either stayed in the office or you carried a very heavy bag of paper home with you. Right. You know, that right. was it. Um, you know, you didn't have instant messaging. You would have a, computers then had a black screen with green or orange typeface on it. You know, there was no internet, but there were problems there then too. And certainly in America, uh, again, the lawyer assistance programs have had their roots in the sort of addiction. Um, I've certainly heard um, at U.S. law schools, there's been a rising or U U.S. universities around heroin addiction as well as prescription medication and I think what we need to see from legal educators is rather than saying you're going to drink a lot and drink in moderation is to say you're going to find it pressurized mm -hmm. but here's some really practical positive things you need to be doing like right. make sure you sleep well put some time in your schedule for exercise downtime playing sports being with your friends um, if you are struggling come and talk to somebody about it and right. see what we can do to help you and that you know using alcohol and drugs as a form of self-medication is not a healthy coping mechanism certainly alcohol in in moderation is is a, you know it's a, a part of our culture and it's something that many people enjoy um drugs is a different story it's illegal you're very highly likely to find your legal career over right if you are um you know caught with you know, I guess class A drugs in the UK or, um, or not, you know, you'd be heavily censored for that because mm -hmm. it's illegal. Um, but if anybody is worried about alcohol or drugs, uh, we certainly have information about that on our website and there are lots of organizations that are out there uh, to help. But what we, I think, need to be promoting is the positive, healthy coping mechanisms that there are for managing pressure and none of them are rocket science. Right. They're all easy things but we right just tend not to do them. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. And I luckily have one of your cards right in front of me so we can direct people to your website, which is www.lawcare.org.uk. You can also call the helpline for free, independent, and confidential uh, service and response, which it would be um, for people in the UK, uh, 0800 279 6888. So hopefully this reaches some people that are in need and hopefully all our listeners are very happy because they've taken the time to listen to a podcast. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>